0: Good morning, Missio. Uh, Scripture reading comes from Revelation 16, 17, uh, 17 to 18. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon, the great, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits they are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was, and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seventh, it is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who For one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people's multitudes nations and languages the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute they will bring her to ruin and leave her naked they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth Man.
1: You get up on a Sunday morning, you think we're going to have a nice Sunday. We're going to have some baptisms, maybe eat some breakfast, it's going to be really fun, and then you show up to church and you have to hear a guy say prostitute 1,100 times. <laughs> just what everybody wants on their Sunday morning. When, um, we'll get in to the book of Revelation in just a second, but before we do, just to preface this a bit, when you're a kid... There is a whole set of things that you think are going to be a problem for you that when you become an adult, you realize are not problems at all. For example, quicksand. As a kid, you really believe that quicksand is going to be a problem that you're going to have to avoid. Truthfully, you think that dangerous surface areas of any kind are going to be a problem for you when you're an adult, slippery, banana peels, magma... All sorts of dangerous surface areas might one day come and get you. Or, another one, spontaneously catching fire, requiring you to stop, drop, and roll. I've never stopped, dropped, or rolled for the purpose of putting out a fire. Now, maybe some of you work in a vocation that is more flammable than mine, but what I have learned as an adult is that I am just less flammable than originally led to believe by teachers, Discovery Channel, and information I receive. Now, if you're a child, please still learn Stop, Drop, and Roll. It's an important skill, I have been told. (laughs) Now, there is one thing that might be unique to me. As a kid, there was one thing that was very unique to my own upbringing because my mom loves FBI thrillers. So my child-rearing was done within the world of FBI thriller novels and bad kung fu movies. And what those taught me, along with Stop, Dropping, and Rolling, is that a part of everyday life was going to be navigating counterfeit money. <laughs> is that unique to me? You guys may think that as a child? As a child, I just thought that all money or large parts of money were counterfeit. And so as a kid, this is true... Every time I would get given, like, a dollar bill, I would hold it up to the light and try to investigate whether or not it was counterfeit. Like, I have any idea what I'm looking for as, like, an eight-year-old staring at a light with a dollar bill in my hand. And I genuinely believed that when I would go to a store to spend money, like, my $5 candy money, and I went to the grocery store, Reams, by our house, and I handed that money to, like, the 16-year-old store clerk... They would use that magic pen that would decipher, I don't even know if that's a real thing, but they had a pen and they would like mark it with a mark and they would find out that the money that I had handed them was counterfeit and they would send me out, candyless and shamed by my counterfeit money. Little did I know that it is actually very difficult to discern the difference between real money and counterfeit money. I learned this as a kid when I tried to print my own fake money. <laughs> Oh, that's the moment of all the times, of all the things that I've said, that's the one that causes concern. When I tried to pick my, make my own fake money and trick an elementary school vending machine, and I could not do that. And I realized in that moment that if this vending machine was smarter than I am, there's no way that I'm going to be able to discern the difference between a real dollar bill and a counterfeit dollar bill. Because counterfeit money is highly sophisticated. I didn't know this, but the Secret Service was formed entirely to stop counterfeit money that was being made during the Confederate or by the Confederates during the Civil War that was being sent into the north to inflate the economy. And so the Secret Service is developed to stop counterfeit money. And today, they still train highly sophisticated counterfeit detectors. And what is interesting about this is that the way you discern the difference between real money and counterfeit money is by becoming experts in genuine currency, which explains why, as a seven-year-old, I had trouble discerning the difference. I was not an expert in genuine currency. I'd only seen, like, $40. <laughs> so the Secret Service trains people to become experts in genuine currency because counterfeit money is highly Sophisticated. And so you study real money and you study the marks of real money and the trade secrets of real money. I didn't know this either, but there are certain things about uh, how they print money that are still considered government secrets that they do not release to the general public so that you can discern the difference between real and counterfeit money. And you study real money enough that when you compare it to the counterfeit, when you look at the fake and you look at the marks of the fake, you are able to discern the differences between what is real and what is a highly sophisticated counterfeit. And once you know the truth, once you understand what makes real currency what it is, it becomes more obvious, the things that are not there. And that's how you get rid of counterfeit currency. You study the real until the counterfeit is revealed as a fake. And when it is revealed as a fake, it quite literally loses whatever value it supposedly had. Now, we are in a series walking through the book of Revelations entitled Kingdom Come And in many ways, this series that we are in could be understood as an expose or a training exercise in spotting counterfeits. We have learned from the beginning until this moment that our God is on a rescue mission, that there is something Problematic in the world. There is something broken in the world around us. And so God is on a rescue mission to undo what is evil, to do, undo what is hurting, to put right those things that are unjust in the world, to bring justice and restoration, as we talked about last week. That God is on a kingdom mission. But the reason that God is on a kingdom mission is that there are a slew of counterfeits. In our world. Throughout the last couple of chapters, we have met some of these counterfeits. We learned about the dragon and the two beasts, and some scholars refer to this three as an unholy trinity. That there is even a rival Godhead that is operating in the world, rival to God, trying to look like God, trying to impersonate God, but unlike God. Less power, less goodness. And in the last two weeks, we have seen that there is a rival kingdom to God's kingdom. The book of Revelations likes to call this kingdom Babylon. We compared it to like an unholy factory at the end of a river that is spewing into the waters poison and filth and hurt people. And God is on a mission to undo Babylon, to unveil it, to show it for what it is, a fake, a counterfeit. Because when it is revealed as such, well, it does what counterfeits always do, lose their value when compared to the real thing. And so in chapter 17 of Revelation, we encounter this counterfeit. And the vision that John receives is trying to help us understand the nature of this counterfeit object. In Revelation 17, John sees a vision, and it's a symbolic vision. Remember, we're working through Revelation, which reads more like a painting than it does a textbook. So it's highly symbolic. It's portraying this thing in a way that is full of symbolism and images to help evoke in us something. And so John sees an evocative image of a beautiful woman. In verse 4 it says, The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls, and she held a golden cup in her hand. This woman is wearing purple and scarlet. These are images of royalty and power in the nation of Rome. It's what Roman officials or Roman power people or Roman elite would have worn to demonstrate their status. So she's wearing purple and scarlet. She is glittering with gold, the text says, shining with wealth and offering to the world around her a cup. That looks beautiful. But then John looks a little bit closer, and as he inspects the bill, so to say, and turns it over in his hands, he sees the cup was filled with abominable things the filth of her adulteries, and the name written on her forehead was a mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Those are a few important things to understand about this vision. And the first thing is that this vision is making a very direct attack on the nation of Rome. Sometimes Rome would be personified as Dia Roma, which is the goddess mother of Rome. She was referred to as the mother of Rome, the goddess of the city of Rome. You can think of it somewhat similar to how we talk about Lady Liberty it's a personification of America, a personification of our deepest values, our deepest held truths, our commitments, our hopes in the world. Dia Roma was similar. She was like that personified ideal, that hope that gave vision to Rome's ideals and majesty. But in this vision, John, like a political cartoonist, reimagines Roma as Babylon. And that attack on Rome continues throughout the text. In verse 9, John sees that the heads of the beasts are actually the seven hills. And Rome was built, the city of Rome is built still on seven hills. And sometimes it was called the city of seven hills. Think about that moment in America's history when John Winthrop called America a city on a hill. In a similar kind of way, Rome was referred to as the city on seven hills. It named the magnitude of Rome, the majesty of Rome, the power of Rome, the glory of Rome. Of Rome, but this vision takes those images that would have been really deeply connected to Roman life, to Roman understanding, to Roman political ideology, and then twists them to criticize re- Rome and reveal it for what it truly is. A counterfeit. An impostor that is impersonating God's work and God's kingdom. And if we were paying attention to earlier moments in the book of Revelation, the correlation between these things that are named about Rome and what God has already named about God's own work and God's church are actually kind of startling. In Revelation 12, we meet another woman. And this woman is said to be clothed with sun and with the moon under her feet. And she also wears a crown of 12 stars on her head. And it says the dragon, the force of Babylon, wages war against her and her offspring, those who keep God's command and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So there's another woman pictured in the book of Revelation. This is a woman who comes to symbolize the kingdom hope of God's work. The birth of God's people. And then in Revelation 14, Jesus is said to rule from a holy hill with his people who carry his name written on their foreheads so the vision takes these images that are directly connected to the life and understanding of rome and then shows how they are counterfeits they are imposters they are impersonations of god's work god's kingdom and god's people But as the vision is criticizing Rome, it's still making a bigger point than just Rome. Rome is the contextual nation in which the people live. But John is more interested in drawing our attention to the fact that counterfeits, impostors, show up again and again. Rome is just the most recent iteration of it. In verse 10 and 12 of Revelation 17, it has this really interesting math equation. It says, there are also seven kings... Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. "'But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while.'" If Johnny has this many apples, how many does he have left? (laughs) "'The beast, who once was and now is not, is an eighth king. "'He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. "'Then the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, "'but for who an hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast.'" We get caught up in that moment trying to find direct reference, but I think the point of this is not direct reference. Instead, it is showing us that counterfeit kingdoms show up again and again. Rome is just the most recent iteration. We've talked about this in the past, but Rome is the ruler of Israel at this moment, but Greece ruled Israel before that. And Persia before that, and Babylon before that, and Egypt even before that. The point of highlighting this moment is to show us that counterfeit kingdoms exist, rival kingdoms exist, and they're going to change shape and form and propaganda. But underneath the surface of it all, something will remain, and that is a promise. And the promise of counterfeits is that you can fulfill your heart's desire if you're willing to pay the price. Josh Butler was a friend of Missio's and wrote a book on these things. Wrote this about Babylon, saying, Babylon is fundamentally, before it is anything else, an economic brothel. It's not a dictator restricting our freedoms, but a vending machine giving us everything we could possibly want. Babylon is an alluring image and a promise to fulfill our desires if we are willing to pay the cost. It is the promise of security, the promise of comfort, the promise of love, of power, and identity. All of those things can be ours in Babylon, hypothetically, if we're willing to pay the cost that Babylon requires. And this is what makes counterfeit so powerful is that they carry within them images of value. They seem deeply valuable. As humans, we are created to long for things, created to desire. Desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. We're made in the image of God, made to love, made to long, made to want, made to come fully alive as our desires are actually fulfilled. We are made to flourish. And that longing in us drives us, it moves us, it sends us in our direction And Babylon, the rival of God's kingdom, the counterfeit of God's kingdom, plays on that thing that is true and good about us and offers us shallow, hollow counterfeits. Things that seem easier in order to get the thing we long for the most. Babylon is a difficult counterfeit because it plays on legitimate desire, so it seems deeply valuable. But the problem with counterfeits is that, in the end, they cannot deliver on the promises they make. In verse 4, it says this woman, Babylon, holds a golden cup. Looks beautiful, looks valuable, but it is filled with filth, the text says. In Rome, the great promise of that nation was peace, was declared as the Pax Romana. And supposedly, in this moment of Roman history, they're living in the Pax Romana, which is a 300-year period of peace. But early Christians become highly critical of the promise of peace because the flip side of Pax Romana is that Rome is always at war. There's actually never a moment in that 300-year period of time where Rome is not invading some country, suppressing some rebellion, or waging war on some territory or nation. And so early Christians become skeptical of the Pax Romana promise, that it feels like a golden cup that is actually filled with violence and bloodshed and war. You make this grand offer of restoration, of justice, of rightness, of peace, and yet what you deliver, hmm, It's actually not what we're longing for. I think most of us know this kind of feeling in our own lives. That sour taste of a promise that fails to deliver what we hoped for. We get a job that we hope will lead to security, and then we are anxious about losing the jobs. We work more hours than ever before until we work ourselves into sickness. We get the next achievement, hoping that that next achievement, that next step will make us okay, but it feels, truthfully, a lot like the last one. Even some of the most beautiful things in our life, marriage or children or an adventure can feel sour when they are expected to carry that much hope and expectation. One of my favorite philosophers is a man named Rene Girard. Rene lived through World War II and wanted to understand why a nation could turn so violent. And at the bottom of everything, Girard said, we are desiring beings, creatures of love. And that's a good and beautiful thing. It's how God made us to be. And the thing that we are searching for, according to Girard, is a sense of being. A sense of self, he would say. It's like that feeling you get when things actually do feel okay. When things feel sort of right within yourself, that like the, the parts of you have aligned. Even if things outside of you are chaotic, like that things have aligned, that there is a sense of okayness. Girard said that that's the thing we are searching for, that's the thing that we long for, and so what we do to find a sense of being is we look at the world around us and see what are other people or institutions or systems doing in order to find that sense of being, and then we do what those things around us show us to do. And again, in many ways, Gerard would say, that's very beautiful. We learn to love by watching our parents or our friends or our families love. We learn what healthy relationships look like by watching and learning and participating in healthy relationships. The problem is that there are rivals or counterfeits all throughout the world that offer different solutions to that question of being. Babylon offers many promises, and so we chase those promises. We chase those hopes of being, that sense of self that we long for most deeply. We run after it until our legs fall off, and when we get our hands around the thing we long for, it seems to slip right out of our hands and into air. What happens when we have that experience of emptiness in Babylon? Do we wake up to it? Rarely, actually. Most of us tend to double down on the same kind of journey, the same kind of rivals, the same kind of counterfeits. In chapter 17, verse 12, John's vision shows this, the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, and they have not yet received a kingdom, but an hour will come and they will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and they will give their power and their authority to the beast. The vision shows that new kings will appear, and like the last, they will offer themselves to the lies of Babylon. It's easy to look at the text and criticize those kings, but those kings are us. We continue to chase after the promises of Babylon again and again, and there is a deep cost to running after lies, to being promised something that never delivers. I think that's why this text uses so much sexual language. It feels offensive, and it is offensive. It's meant to be offensive. It's meant to be startling. Do you ever know those stories of when like, a sailor is like sitting on a boat, and they look in the water, and they see a mermaid, and then they jump in the water, and it's it's like a walrus. (laughs) You're like, oh, that's not what I wanted. (sighs) I think that's how walruses eat. That's what this text is trying to do, to startle us with this use of imagery. But it's also connecting, I think, to the feeling of constant disappointment, to being lied to, again, And again, something about that experience feels like sex without connection. Maybe it is good for a moment, but it leaves you feeling used, taken advantage of, or exploited. And many of you know that there is a trauma to exploitation and disappointment. A reoccurring woundedness that occurs when that is our story in the world around us. And I think many of us, if not all of us, carry in our being that sense of being used and spit out by Babylon again and again. The very famous psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud, for what he's worth, so you have to say that, Believe that we have a way of undermining our own pursuit of desires. Because if we got the thing we longed for, Freud believed the trauma of actually getting it would be too much to bear. What would be worth chasing anymore if you found the thing that you longed for? And I think in some ways there's some truth to that. But I think in Babylon, we got exactly what we were promised. But what we were promised is not what we needed. It's not what our hearts truly desired. It is not what we were built for or what we long for. Jesus, early in his ministry, has an encounter with this rival kingdom and this system of trauma and disappointment. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus enters the wilderness to pray. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness to pray before his ministry really begins in full and when he enters into the wilderness, Jesus meets the tester. It's that dragon, that old snake as the text refers to him as. And the tester offers multiple different temptations, multiple different tests, but the third one hits the closest to Jesus's home. In Matthew 4 verse 8 through 9 it says this, the tester took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And says, all of this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. In this moment, the tester, that old snake, is offering to Jesus the promises of Babylon, Babylon itself a counterfeit rival kingdom to the one that Jesus is on mission to establish. And it is a difficult test because it gets to the very heart of Jesus' mission, Jesus' purpose, Jesus' hope in the world, but it offers that accomplishment through the tools of Babylon. Come down and bow before. Take the cup that's filled with filth which fundamentally for Jesus means to forsake the way of the cross. To choose an easier path to the reconciliation that Jesus longs for. To choose an easier path to the hope of establishing a new kingdom than Jesus longs for. And in this temptation, Jesus responds most viscerally to this moment. He says, away from me, Tester, where he's sort of entertained him before. I think it's because Jesus knows that if he says yes to that temptation, Babylon wins. The rival kingdom stands. The disappointment and trauma of dissatisfaction and exploitation continues to reign. But instead of choosing the way of Babylon, Jesus enters into Babylon as the Lamb. Revelation 17 says that Babylon makes war on the Lamb. Jesus enters into Babylon, enters the factory up the river, as we said last week, and at every moment that Babylon shows itself, that rival stories show themselves, that the exploitation and trauma of dissatisfaction seeks to reduce us into less, at every moment Jesus meets us with the real thing. every moment something would reduce a person, Jesus meets them with righteousness, right acting towards an image bearer. Jesus meets us with love. He welcomes all into his presence. He shows kindness. He heals. He gives evidence and demonstration of the real kingdom. Jesus loves where Babylon offers only shallow counterfeits. Now, Babylon cannot endure such threats to its own power, so it unleashes itself on Jesus. It wages war on the Lamb, but in doing so, it dooms itself because Jesus takes it. Jesus takes every iota That Babylon can throw at him every moment of violence every piece of trauma every moment of exploitation everything that Babylon has to offer death itself it throws at Jesus and Jesus absorbs all of it into himself and when the dust has settled and the islands have fled as chapter 16 ends in Jesus is still standing and what does he do offers himself to us again offers the real thing. And in doing, he unmasks the very worst of Babylon with the truth of his love and his kingdom. Counterfeits lose whatever value they have when the truth appears. One of my favorite stories in the Chronicles of Narnia comes in The Voyage of the Don Treader. And in it, C.S. Lewis tells this story about a governor who is overseeing a chunk of islands called the Lonely Islands. And in this story, the governor has totally maligned leadership of this island. He's instituted slavery. He's mismanaged money. He's made it a cruel bureaucracy to support his own power. And one day, King Caspian, who is the king of Narnia, the rightful king, arrives on a boat and finds out that there's this cruel governor leading the island. And as Caspian arrives, the king of Narnia, news begins to spread throughout the island. And so when Caspian first sets foot on the island, crowds have already begun to gather. And they begin to cheer and to celebrate. And their cheering and celebration, it draws even more people to the crowd around him. And as Caspian and his royal retinue head towards the governor's palace, more cheering, more spectacle emerges, children initially, then the old, and then it draws even people most mired in the governor's work to cheer and celebrate. And C.S. Lewis writes this very, very beautiful line. He says this, they were cheering because it was a king. And what is a governor compared with that? What is a counterfeit compared to the real What is Babylon to the kingdom of Jesus? And what happens to Babylon? Well, it collapses in on itself, unable to withhold its own weight. In the story of the lonely islands, the governor flees because when the king arrives, he changes the policies. And so the governor loses whatever wealth and power and money and stature he had and he flees penniless into the woods. And likewise, Babylon devours itself. When I was reading this text, it kind of reminded me of Scar and the hyenas at the end of Lion King. When the king arrives, the imposter is revealed to be exactly what he is, and so he is devoured by his own machinations. Verse 16 says this, The beast and the ten horns you saw, they will come to hate Babylon. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and they will burn her with fire. Evil, as the writers of the Bible understand, is self-destructive. It destroys its own self. It cannot hold up under its own weight when the truth, when the real thing arrives. Missio Babylon is coming undone. It is unraveling at the seams because of its own self-destructive nature. It cannot uphold its own weight of pain, exploitation, and damage. Because the truth of Jesus, the truth of the real kingdom is being revealed. And you and I, we are invited to participate in Babylon's unraveling. Not like Babylon, not by engaging in the same tools or same works or same machinations as Babylon, but by following the lamb. Revelation 17 says they will wage war on the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords, king of kings. What is a governor compared to a king? And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. That's us, Missio. We are invited to be the people of the Lamb who offer to this world, to this moment, to this place in time, what is true, what is real, what is good. There are certain signs and symbols of our participation in God's real work. When we gather at the table, we participate and give witness to the thing Jesus is doing in the world. If Babylon is a kingdom of less, well, then the table shows us a kingdom of abundance where all are welcomed and called into the presence of our king. And we also witness to this new real thing happening in Jesus through our baptism. In baptism, we say we are dying to the rival. We are being rescued from the kingdom of darkness, pulled out of Babylon, and delivered, as Paul says in Colossians, into the kingdom of the beloved Son. So in baptism, we demonstrate to the world, we say to all those around us, that we belong to a new Kingdom, one of love, one that follows the way of the Lamb, one that is real and one that unmasks the power and exploitations of all the rivals around us. So, Missio, today we're going to do both. We're going to gather at the table to witness the real thing that Jesus is doing so that we too might experience it as followers of the Lamb and then. We're going to celebrate this new kingdom with a baptism. There's one planned right now. The baptism is open to anyone who would like to participate. And so if you're here and you would like to get baptized, there'll be a song that plays, I Will Stand in the Back. There'll be two people who will be praying in the back by those doors. You can just go tell them that I would like to be baptized. We have towels, changes of clothes, and we would love to baptize you today. And no matter who you are, no matter where you're coming from, maybe you've been baptized before, maybe you haven't. That space is welcome to you, as is this table. Because as is the kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, today, as we tell your story, sing your songs, pray together, get baptized, come to the table, would you unveil Babylon? Would you reveal the counterfeits of our lives, the places of hurt and exploitation, and where we are taken advantage of? Would you reveal them for what they are and call us, liberate us into your kingdom? The place where we are called to be, created to be, where we are free to desire and long and find our heart's true flourishing. Just today, through every gesture, every moment, would you call us home? to be your people in your world. In your name we pray. Amen.